The following message by Pastor Scott is brought to you by Together in Christ. Go ahead, open your Bibles to the book of Philemon again. And if you weren't here last week, I told everybody a trick. If you have trouble finding Philemon is just find the book of Hebrews and then go to the beginning of Hebrews and Philemon is right before it. And that'll help you find that. Last week, I told you that we basically were going to stay just at the beginning of Philemon, and that's what we did. We didn't really get much into the what I would call the meat of the text. I didn't really get into the reason why Paul wrote to this guy named Philemon. It's mainly just the fact that this is his friend that he knows, but we didn't really get into the occasion for why he wrote to him. We just kind of looked at the prayer that Paul had had for his friend starting off. So tonight, what I would like to do is actually get into more of the reason that he wrote, the, the meat of it, so to speak. And so if you would, trusting that you're there, I'm going to start in verse 8, and I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter, and that'll basically the whole book of Philemon, just one chapter. So verse 8, accordingly, Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ." Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this letter tonight that your servant Paul wrote to his friend Philemon, God, I pray that you would awaken our hearts to the truth of the gospel and of the ethic that motivates us as Christians as we seek to bring others to you, Lord. I pray that you would challenge our hearts and that we would have a deeper trust in you and the power of your Holy Spirit and your work 
that we would not try to change people out of our own power, but that we would be able to rely on you and trust you to do that. You've promised to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We find the reason that Paul wrote this letter in the first place in verse 10 with the introduction of a totally new character to the story, Onesimus. And so look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So let's just ask this question. If, as we, this is one of my favorite parts about studying the Bible is whenever you come to a letter that somebody wrote or a story from the Old Testament or something and to find out what's going on, you kind of have to be like a detective you know, with your, you know, if you just picture it like a child, like a detective with your little magnifying glass, and you're just searching for clues throughout the Bible and the text to see and so and put things together and, and connect the dots. And what you end up with is this picture now of understanding. That's one of my favorite things to do with study of the Bible. So let's just do that real quick to try to figure out as much as we possibly can in the time that we have about who this Onesimus is, who is Philemon, and how do they relate to Paul? How do they relate to each other? Let's just do that. So we can go through this and find a few things that we can know with relative certainty about Onesimus. First, he's a convert. Verse 10 says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. That is classic Paul language for I am his spiritual father. He became a Christian under my ministry. So we don't know how Onesimus and Paul met. All we know is that they did while Paul was in prison. And because of that, Onesimus now professes faith in Christ. So as Philemon knows Onesimus, he, he, he does not know him as a Christian. And Paul's telling him now, now Onesimus is now a Christian. There's been a change in his life. He's converted, praise God. The second thing that we can know about Onesimus is that Paul is sending him home. He's sending him back. Verse 12, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't really give us very much. What is it? Where is he going? Where is back? Where, where is he going? Well, this is where we don't just stay in one book of the Bible. We use the rest of Scripture to try to help us put this puzzle together, okay? Scripture helps itself. We can find clues in other places. And so if you would, turn to just a few books over maybe to the book of Colossians in chapter four. We have good reason to believe that Onesimus and therefore Philemon are residents of Colossae. And we think that because of what's recorded in Colossians chapter four. Look at verse nine. Sorry, I'm gonna start in verse eight. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, your faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. He is one of them. Now, you could say, well, Scott, that doesn't really prove anything. He could, I mean, who's to say this isn't some other Onesimus? Onesimus was a common name in this time, okay? So it could have been another Onesimus. And he says, one of you. Maybe he meant he's a, he's a Christian like you are. 
Well, there's more clues in Colossians 4 that we can look at. So look now, not at verse 9, but at verse 17. There's another person mentioned in verse 17 that, if you remember, is mentioned in Philemon in verse 2. When Paul is greeting the people in Philemon, I'll just read verses 1 and 2 of Philemon. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Epipha, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So because of these names, there is good reason to believe that Onesimus is part of the church in Colossae, that Philemon is part of the church in Colossae. And if you remember, when he's writing to Philemon, he says, and to the church in your house, we have good reason to believe that the church that meets in Philemon's house is the Colossian church meeting there in his home. And so Onesimus is going back to Colossae, where Philemon is. What's another thing that we can know about Onesimus from Philemon? Well, from a few different places, we can safely make the assumption that Onesimus, the specifics of his relationship to Philemon is that he is Philemon's slave. Look at verse eight and nine. I'm sorry, look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be out of compulsion, but of your own accord. But this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. And then in verse 16, it says this, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother. That word bond servant, a synonym for that word is slave. Many times when Paul is writing other letters to other churches, he introduces himself as a slave or as a bondservant to Christ. But in this context, the reference is to Onesimus being a bondservant to Philemon, which makes total sense now of what it says in verse 14 when Paul says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent. Paul didn't want to keep Onesimus with him without the consent of Philemon. Why would he need the consent of Philemon? What's Philemon's stake in the game? Why would he care? unless he's a slave. Another clue that we have is Onesimus's name. Onesimus meant, the word means in the Greek, useful, which is what he says in verse 11. There's like the, my version has like this in parentheses when Paul says he's using a play on Onesimus's name when he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. He's referencing Onesimus' conversion, but he's using his name, Onesimus, which means useful, as a play on words to show this change that's happened in him. And so Onesimus is a slave. Now, obviously, that opens up a big can of worms, and I'm not gonna talk about any of it tonight. You have to come back next week. So Onesimus, we have reason to believe, is a slave. But a little bit deeper into their relationship is that for some reason, we can see in this letter that there is some kind of relational tension between Onesimus and Philemon. There's something that's gone wrong in their relationship. 
Verse, in verse 17, so it, we see the main thrust of what Paul wants Philemon to do. This is the reason why he's writing the letter. And the reason is this. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him. What Paul wants Philemon to do is to receive back Onesimus. What other reason would Paul need to ask Philemon to do that if there is some reason why he might not receive him back, if he's coming back? But we have even more reason to believe that there's some kind of social relational tension between these two men because Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 18, he says, if he's wronged you at all, there's an assumption maybe that Philemon feels wronged by Onesimus or owes you anything. Maybe Onesimus owes Philemon something. Paul says, charge that to my own account. So let's just kind of summarize everything that we can essentially with good reason assume about the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon's a resident of Colossae with a church that meets in his own house. And Onesimus is his slave who somehow ran into Paul during his imprisonment and was converted under Paul's ministry. But now he has to return back to Philemon. And the circumstances surrounding their relationship are muddy, but it's tense enough that Paul would feel the need to send Onesimus back with a letter written in his own hand asking Philemon to receive him back. So let me just shorten that for you. Paul is playing the middleman, trying to reconcile two people who aren't getting along. Essentially, that's what this letter is. Paul trying to reconcile the relationship between two men. That's what's happening. It's that simple. I don't know if you have ever actually tried to step into a situation where two people are not getting along, two people are arguing, It's a very dangerous place to be because this friend over here maybe wants you to take their side, but you can't do that because if you do that, this person over here is gonna get mad at you. And if you take this person's side, that person's gonna get mad at you. And even if you try walking down the middle and just being the reasonable person, they're both mad at you because they both want you on their side, right? So it's risky to do that. Paul, by doing what he's doing in sending Onesimus with this letter to his master, asking him to receive him back, Paul is taking a risk. He's risking his relationship with his friend, Philemon. This, just a side note here, because I think this is really important. There are many reasons why people tend to avoid conflict in their lives. There's a reason people do that, and many of them. But I think that one of them is that we fear that to engage the circumstances around the conflict is not gonna solve it, but it's just gonna make it worse. And because that is our fear, we have this hope that if we just leave the situation alone, that if we don't address it, it will just go away. It'll just evaporate like a puddle in the sun. The problem with that is that that rarely happens. We know that. It doesn't just evaporate. Yeah, you'll forget about it, but what you've actually done, what's happened is that you take this relational tension and you've just thrown it on the pile of all the other relational tension from the past. 
And what ends up happening sooner or later is this pile has grown so big of unaddressed conflict that what ends up happening is that this pile is unstable and eventually an avalanche happens. And it's so big now, even though it could be little things here and there, but it's gone unaddressed and unfixed and it's just accumulated over time and avalanche crashes down and rips through people's relationships. The great deception between not addressing conflict because you fear that it will get worse and just hoping that it will go away. The, the great deception with that is that it does work in the short term. You can deal with it short term, but it rarely works long term. Listen, we, we're a church, right? A church that does not learn how to properly address conflict within the body of believers, that church will last short term, but let me tell you, long term, that church will, be, will crumble. We as a church will divide. A church will split because we don't know how to address conflict in a healthy way. Unfortunately, I've known and I've both known and counseled married couples that have been married for 15, going on 20 years. They have kids, they have a life. It's just been the pattern for a long time. And I've counseled those people, those married people, because that's how they've addressed conflict in their marriage. They haven't dealt with it. What they do is they ignore it and they throw it on the pile and they assume, let's just not, let's just not deal with this. It's gonna make it worse. But what's happening is that pile will eventually come crashing down and it gets to the point where these two people have been married for 20, 30 years. They can't stand each other anymore. And there's so much junk in this avalanche that's come down that they don't, they don't even wanna deal with it and they're done with each other. I've seen that happen multiple times. And it's all because they never learned how to address conflict with one another. And so just to conclude this kind of side thought here, since this is a letter about reconciling people's relationships. If you're in a situation, whether it's in your marriage or in our church, maybe with another church member, I don't know, or at work, and you're trying to figure out, you're, you're weighing the risk, the pros and the cons of addressing this situation because you're worried that it might make it worse. Let me just remind you of this. We're playing a long-term game. It's a long-term game, and you can't win a long-term game with a short-term strategy. Just trying to sweep things under the rug will not work long-term. We've got to learn to deal with conflict in a healthy way, in a restorative way. That's what Paul's trying to do. And he saw it as a risk, and apparently Paul was willing to take this risk, to step into this situation. But he doesn't just run in, guns a-blazing, causing havoc everywhere, bull through a china shop. He doesn't do that. But what we see here, as, as Paul addresses his friend Philemon, he writes this letter very tactfully, very skillfully. And he actually adopts this position and this posture of humility as he's talking to his friend. He's pleading with his friend. So look with me just at a few things that he does. I'm just gonna point out a few things to you that he does. First, when he introduces himself in verse one, how does he introduce himself? He says, Paul, a prisoner 
for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. In almost every other letter that Paul writes, there's a few that he doesn't, but almost every other letter that Paul writes, he introduces himself as an apostle. He might say that he is a servant of Christ. He might say he is a prisoner for Christ, but he usually at least introduces himself as an apostle. He doesn't do that here because that title comes with it, a certain weight of authority that commands respect, but he doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He positions himself in humility. He says, Paul, I'm a prisoner. That's what I am. What else does he do? In verse seven, what we looked at last week is Paul kind of, in a, in a sense, he's just really sneaky. Paul kind of butters him up a little bit. In verse seven, he reminds Philemon of the, the relationship that they have and how Paul's been encouraged by Philemon. What does he say? For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Reflects on the benefits of their friendship together, how it's benefited him. But then... Paul, again, in a really sneaky way almost, in verse nine, reminds Philemon of Paul's own physical condition at this point in his life. Verse nine, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. It's almost like Paul is approaching Philemon and saying, would you do a favor for an old man? Would you help me with this? So it's almost like Paul is being really sneaky with him, but he's positioning himself with a posture of humility, trying to reason with his friend. He's not coming in guns a-blazing, throwing his weight around as an apostle. And he, he even says in, in, in verse eight, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, he says, look, I'm bold enough to do this. I actually have the authority to do this. But verse nine, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you for the sake of love. We talked about love last week and the place that it must hold in the fellowship of believers. It's important. But it's in verse eight that we see Paul's heart and the principle that is guiding him in his address to Philemon. Verse eight, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul has the authority. He has the ability. We just got done this morning going through a, a, a series in Galatians where Paul was not afraid to throw his authority around, right? Tim reminded us, Pastor Tim reminded us this morning of how Paul, one of his tasks in writing that letter was to reinforce his authority as an apostle. That's what he did, but not here not when he's trying to reconcile a relationship. In Galatians, he's defending the faith. Here, he's reconciling a friendship. If you walk into a situation and you throw your authority around and you wear it on your sleeve, you might rectify that situation, but you will lose your relationship with whatever person you're dealing with, whether it's a person who works under you at work or your child even. You can lose your relationship over that. But verses 13 and 14, we see that in verse eight, but in verses 13 and 14, we see an even more explicit understanding of this principle that is guiding how Paul is interacting with Philemon. Verses 13 and 14 says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment 
for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order, and this is where we, this is where we see this principle. Here it is, you ready? In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. If Philemon forgives Onesimus and receives him back, Paul wants it to be because it was Philemon's decision, not because he was compulsed to, not because Paul pressured him to, not because there was this social weight laid on him that if he didn't, the apostles are coming, right? Paul wanted it to be his own decision. This is a theme that we can find in multiple other areas of the Christian life. There's two more examples that are very explicit in Scripture, and there's many more that I could go on, and I might mention them later, but these two are very explicit because there's verses that say them directly, and so I wanna point your attention to them just to demonstrate to you that this is, this is a principle, a general principle that's followed in Christian relationships and in Christian life, in church life that is present in Philemon, and so I see it, and we need to bring it out because it has vast implications for us as a church. You'll see. But uh, one is not, so here, Philemon 17 is on forgiveness. Paul wants Philemon to forgive Onesimus and he wants it to do it because he wants to. But there's other instances like in giving money. So you don't need to turn there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse nine, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly, or here's that word again, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Another example in service, in 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter, he's writing to uh, pastors here, but this goes across the board for anyone who's in a church that might serve in some way. He says in 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. There is this general tendency that we see in the scriptures that God's desire is that our Christian actions be motivated by a changed heart, not outside pressure. That's the principle. That's what we see. God wants our Christian actions to be motivated by a changed heart, not peer pressure not church pressure, not authority crashing down on people, but through a transformed heart. He wants us to give because we want to. He wants us to serve because we want to. He wants us to forgive people because we want to. And if you notice all of those things, giving, serving, and forgiving other people, those things don't come very naturally to us. We're not naturally generous. We tend to be naturally greedy. We don't naturally want to serve other people. We naturally want to be served. We don't naturally want to forgive people. We want to hold a grudge and we want to hold it over their heads. Which is exactly why Paul prayed in verse six that we looked at last week. What did he pray? I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. When we looked at that and we, we blew that up and saw what that meant, it's that what 
Paul was praying for Philemon is that he would be transformed out of his fellowship with the church and his participation in the faith. He wanted that to have a transformative effect on his heart. And so what he's saying here is, Philemon, this is an opportunity for that transformation to happen, for your transformed heart to have a desire to forgive Onesimus. Would you forgive him? Would you receive him and welcome him back? That transformation can only happen through the power of God. That's something that only God can do. The theological term we use for that is regeneration. It's where God removes your heart of stone and replaces it with a living, beating heart of flesh. Says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive in Christ. It's regeneration. Philemon's willingness and ability to forgive Onesimus would only come by the work of the Spirit transforming and regenerating his heart to want to do that. You know, that's actually a really good way. Uh, It's not a for sure test, but it's a really good test for you to try and see if someone is truly a born-again Christian. You find them in a situation where they are presented with an opportunity to do what a Christian would do or to do what a unbeliever would do that's motivated by their flesh and dead in their sins or if they're regenerated and they have a new heart in Christ. Don't tell them what their decision is. This is great for parents to do with your kids. Let them make their own decision. You obviously know what you want them to do, and but instead of making them do it, see what they do on their own. See if they make the decision that a person with a new heart in Christ would make. It's not a for sure test, but it's at least one that you can check out. And so because of God's desires, the principle here, when you condense it down, the principle that we follow in our ministry, in our church, as Christians trying to reach a lost world with the gospel, trying to live in community with one another, to be transformed into the image of Christ and to glorify God as a church, the principle is this, we aim for a changed heart, not modified behavior. We aim for a changed heart, not modified behavior. There is great danger in a church that practices what I would call coercive Christianity. Because what you produce is something like a zombie Christian. So at the costume party this past week, we played a game called Zombie Tag. Uh, It was absolute chaos. Uh, I was I was a little worried that it just would not work. <laughs> but it, it was fun. The kids enjoyed it. But it was zombie tag, where if you're tagged, you have to walk around like a zombie and not bend your knees and say weird noises and all that stuff or whatever. But what you end up producing, if you, in, if you aim at, at modified behavior and not a changed heart, is you create a zombie Christian. What is a zombie? It's a thing that looks like it's a a living, breathing human being because it's up and it's moving around and it's walking. It can even make some noises, you know, or whatever, but it's dead inside. It doesn't have a new heart. It has a dead, rotting heart. It's not motivated by a transformed, remade heart in Christ, but it is coerced to move and to walk
Ultimately, more than that, the real danger of practicing coercive Christianity is that you lose the gospel and what you're left with is a sense of dead moralism. Let me explain that. If Here's to explain what it means that you, we can lose the gospel if we start trying to coerce people to act a certain way, if we start making expectations for people. Here's what would happen. Let's just say if lost people started coming here on Sunday mornings, if lost people started joining us in our weekly activities and they started coming to Bible studies and they started walking into our church, which they do, by the way, and I really hope they keep coming. And I really hope that more come. I hope that you have that same hope. But if they come here and what happens is they begin to be coerced to dress a certain way, to talk a certain way, to listen to certain music, if they are coerced to give their money, if they are coerced to serve in certain areas and they are coerced to do those things and they see everyone else doing those things begrudgingly, not willingly, and we are all coerced to do these things, what they will walk away with is that is the idea, because they're biblically illiterate, what they'll walk away with is the idea that to be a Christian is to be moral. And oh, that's so wrong. To be a Christian is not to be moral. To be a Christian is not to have changed behavior. To be a Christian is to be a sinner that has been forgiven by the grace and the mercy of God. And so we have to be willing and ready as a church to let people come in here. If they're sinners, we can't expect them to not act like sinners. We can't expect them to dress modestly. We can't expect them to give generously. We can't expect them to not be selfish. They're going to be sinners. And if what we try to do when they come is modify their behavior, say, no, 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 no. You can't act like that. You can't wear that in this in this room. This is God's room. You can't do that. You can't say that. Young man, you need to cover up your tattoos. Young woman, you need to cover up your legs. You need to do this. You have to do that. You need to start acting like this. If you do that, they get a very distorted sense of who God is. God doesn't care about their behavior. He cares about their heart what's motivating the behavior. It's the engine that's driving that behavior. We have to aim at their hearts. I don't want people to think that to be a Christian is to clean your life up. That's what you get with coercive Christianity. I want them to walk out of here knowing that to be a Christian is to be a sinner that has been forgiven and is being transformed by the power of the Spirit in your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. And let me tell you something. A person who understands that and a person who gets that, a sinner forgiven by grace who knows God's love for them despite their sin is the one who's not only saved by his grace, they are the ones who will be transformed if they know that God loved them despite their sin. You will not find a more generous person than someone who knows that they deserve nothing, but they've been given everything. You will not find a more servant-hearted person than someone who has been served by such a humble savior. 
And you will not find a person who is more forgiving than someone who has realized that they've been forgiven for so much more. You won't find that person. So if you actually want people that are changed and are transformed, you've got to aim at their hearts. That's not to say that we don't actually try to convince people and work with people. Look at what Paul did. He actually tried to convince Philemon. He was tactful in how he did this. Paul made arguments and he gave reasons and he even put responsibility on himself and said, I will repay it. We don't force people to profess faith, but we plead with them to. We don't force people to give money, but we ask that they do. And we don't force relationships to reconcile, but we work tirelessly and tactfully so that they would be reconciled. Just to give you a real life example of, well, you might be asking the question, okay, well, Scott, how do you do that? How do you, how do you address a situation that has to be addressed, but don't simply focus on transforming their behavior, but rather transforming their heart. Let me just give you an example of what I at least try to do as a dad. I don't, I'm not always successful as a dad, but I try as much as I can. You might think that Nolan is just this cute little miniature man running around with his cute little clothes on Sunday. His mom does that. It's not me. He would be wearing sweatpants every day if it were me. You might think he's just a cute little kid running around, but he is a sinner, let me tell you. And he does things oftentimes to, that are mean, disrespectful, hurtful to his mom, his brother, his, me sometimes. And if I were to try and address those situations just by taking him and saying, you know better, don't do that again. Stop doing that. All I'm doing is addressing the behavior. And I'm just trying to modify what he's doing and change his behavior. I try not to do that. But what I want him to see, even though he's three, he can understand this. I've seen it before. What I instead will try to do is, many times I'll try to, after it's already happened and we're through the fit or whatever it is, I'll sit him down and I'll try to explain to him and I'll say, Nolan, do you realize that what you did hurt Thomas or that that was mean to mommy? And you know, he'll say, yeah, I know. But I won't stop there. I won't just guilt him with it. I'll say, but you know, Nolan, you, you did hurt mommy when you did that. Or you did, that was mean to Thomas and you shouldn't do that. But do you wanna know who cares more about what you did than me and mommy and Thomas? God knows what you did. And what you did wasn't just mean to them. It was what God calls sin. It was sinful for you to do that because God doesn't want us to act like that, but we did. And Nolan, one day, these things that you do that are mean or hurtful, you don't just have to ask mommy and daddy for forgiveness. You need to ask God for forgiveness because you've actually sinned against him more than you've sinned against us. But you wanna know something? God loves you even though you're a sinner. And if you ask him for his forgiveness, do you know what he'll do? He'll forgive you because even while we were sinners, God loved us. And I'll remind him that even though he sinned against me or the people that I love, I still love him too. And I'll try to address his, that addresses his heart. 
the root issue. You see, my son's main problem is not a behavior that he needs to correct. His main problem is that he is a sinner that will one day stand before a holy God. We sang at the beginning of our service, holy, holy, holy. He will stand before a holy God. My son's main problem is not that he's sometimes mean, it's that he's a sinner and he needs God's forgiveness just as much as I do, just as much as you do. Pointing people towards the fact that they need forgiveness, not just changed behavior, is addressing their heart. And at the end of the day, if Philemon forgives Onesimus, it's only because he had a changed heart. We have good reason to believe that he did forgive Onesimus. There's not... There's not much evidence that we would actually have this letter had he not forgiven him. It lasted and we have it now probably because he did forgive him. And so I want this to encourage you. I wanted to focus on this principle tonight that we do not coerce people, but we look for a transformed heart in our ministry, in our families, in our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you God, that Christ was not coerced to the cross, but that he went willingly and humbly for us. Lord, that we all have guilt of our sin, but you have shown your love for us in that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. God, I pray that we would be a church that does not aim at behavior modification, but Lord, that we aim at people's hearts when we see people that don't necessarily look like they belong or that they've got some issues that they still need to work out, Lord, I pray that we would not look on them with judgment, but that we would look on them with compassion as you have looked on us with compassion. Lord, help us point them towards Christ where they can find forgiveness and grace and mercy. Oh God, would you help us? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Scott from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.